Hello, you're listening to Sarah Archer and episode 49 of the Speaking Club podcast. This episode almost didn't happen. There was an electrical surge yesterday and I lost a load of important files. It's true what they say, power corrupts. Welcome to the Speaking Club podcast, because making them laugh is the secret sauce to your speaking, pitching and business success. And now your host, Sarah Archer. Welcome to the show. And after a bit of an emotional roller coaster last week, this episode is all about the funny. My guest is Dr. Steve Cross, a scientist turned science communications consultant and comedian. And he is on a mission to increase public engagement with science and make clever people funny. And he also has some strong views on public speaking. Now, this show was recorded live during the Edinburgh Fringe, so you may hear some low level external noise which was due to a new hotel being built right next door to where I was recording. But I know you're going to love this show. So strap in and let's go. He's got fellowships and chairs coming out of his ears, as well as a rather big brain between them. Welcome to the show, public <laughs> engagement and communication consultant, trainer and strategist, an all-round funny bloke, Dr. Steve Cross. This, that is the most overdone introduction <laughs> I've ever had. Chairs coming out of my ears. It's ridiculous. I don't have any chairs, listeners, uh, apart from, like, I've got an office chair and I've got one aluminium chair and that is it. That is all. I don't have any actual chairs. It's ridiculous. I think he's just being modest there. I'm not being modest at all. Yeah, I anyway. think you are. Anyway, anyway, I want to know, in a nutshell, can you tell me how you went from scientist to comedian and communication specialist? Yeah, well, I was a terrible scientist. So the easy first stage is I get out of science by being rubbish at it, getting through my viva somehow, four-hour-long viva, mostly two men going, something very complicated, and me going, I don't understand something very complicated. (laughs) Something very complicated explained in clearer language, me. It's not the language that's the problem. I just don't understand the something complicated. Uh, to this day, I always joke that the only reason I have a PhD is my external examiner really needed a wee and couldn't work out how to leave the room without making some sort of decision. So passed me with major corrections. So getting out of science was easy. Uh, the next thing I did was I went into science communication yeah. and worked in a whole variety of jobs doing that. Um, one of those jobs, I was head of public engagement at UCL which some of you will know is a university in central London, hence its name. And um, that joke is just to really annoy people (laughs) who went there, because they'll be sitting thinking that's not its name, Steve, but it's fine. Um, So I went there and uh, I was tasked with coming up with ways for academics to interact with people who aren't academics. And one of the big challenges the university had was the same that museums had and the same that a lot of festivals had, which was that they were really good at working with people till they were 18 like kids programming, or if you're a university, it's really easy to interact with school groups. Yeah. But then usually you don't hear from a university again until you are 50 and you start watching Horizon and listening to Radio 4. And there's this whole gap in the middle where they yeah. said, we want to do something in this gap. So something our academics can do that reaches 18 to 40, 18 to 50 year olds. And I talked to a load of people who run successful events and they said, you've got to do comedy. Like, uh-huh. You can't train a researcher to act quickly. You can't train them to write decent poetry quickly. You can train them to do stand-up quickly. So we're going to run stand-up comedy nights. Oh, wow. And that's the genesis of Bright Club. 
that Bright Club wasn't me doing comedy. I ran Bright Club for a year before I ever went on stage and did any comedy. Uh-huh. And the reason I got forced into comedy was I was running this thing where every month I had to talk six people from PhD students to professors into doing stand-up. Yeah. And it got to the point where people were saying to me, Steve, have you done it? And I would go, oh, no, obviously, because if I did it, that would take away a space that's available for a professor. And then they would go, well, I think you haven't done it because it's scary and wrong. <laughs> so I had to do Bright Club. I did a show about books. But it was a year from its genesis to me giving it a go. So when you say a show, do you mean, like, how, how long was this show that you... Was it what, a... what we do at Bright Club is we give people nine minutes. Right. So there's a professional MC. Yeah. Um, for my first show, the MC was Sarah Bonetto. It was uh-huh. amazing. And um, they do the introduction, they build everyone up, and then we have six to eight academics doing yeah. nine minutes of stand-up about their work. Cool. We give them nine minutes rather than the industry standard five, so they can squeeze in four minutes of actually what they wanted to talk about, right. as well as the five the minutes. Top and tail, yeah, yeah. Well, just a little bit about, actually, it's really maternal death in developing nations is an incredibly serious matter kind of thing yes. in the middle. Yes, um, So that's the Bright Club format. Cool. Okay. So, so basically, that's how you got into it, and you know, someone obviously told you that it, it was important. But have you, in the work that you've done and in, in the experience that you've had with these scientists and, yeah. and other professions, yeah. how, you know, do you believe actually yourself now it is important? And what sort of things have you seen happen as a result of them being funny? Aha, uh-huh, right. So what I'll do is I'll tell you about what some of the people I've worked with have told me. Yes. One of the schemes that I run is called the Show Off Talent Factory, and I'm mentoring 28 people from across science, but also people who are allied to science in different ways, yeah. so outreach officers and public engagement managers yes. and so on. Um, and I've trained all of them to be funny, and they've done lots of gigs. They work with me for... Some of them have been working with me for two years, some for a year... And part of the deal is they get first option on every single show that I run. So they've done panel shows and improv game shows and stand-up shows all over the place. Oh, brilliant. They told me that being funny has obviously made them better at public speaking. I always use the line, after you've done proper stand-up, no public speaking you ever do will ever be difficult ever again. That's funny, I say the same thing, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's just a fact, it's so nice yeah. eventually to then go and talk to people who know what you're talking about instead of 80 drunk randoms <laughs> just trying to interrupt you. Um, they said it's made them more confident, and not just in terms of speaking, but in terms of other things, it's made them much better at standing up for themselves at work. Oh, that's interesting. And even in things like budget meetings, it has made them better at putting their ideas forward. Um, and sometimes learning how to be the funny person in the room has changed a lot of the meetings that they have. So when you have that really awkward meeting and it's just where is the budget allocation going to go, being funny has allowed them to be the quick one in the room, release the tension yeah. and then get what they want a lot more quickly. Yeah. One thing that came out of it that was amazing was lots of my mentees are women, like most of them. And it's given them a new skill, which is getting away from boring men at conferences. (laughs) So I I didn't know this because I am a man, but one of the things that happens to young women at Scientific and other similar conferences is that at the coffee break, a boring man will just stand in front of them and keep talking and just kind of trap them away from the rest of the room. But my mentees have discovered that if you wait for him to pause, you do a quick one-liner about the thing he's just said... He will laugh, and as he laughs, you can just walk away. Like, even if every other social disengagement signal has failed, 
that one works and uh -huh. he feels like that was actually the end of a conversation even if he wouldn't leave you away alone any other way oh that's interesting yeah i mean and some of the people that i've trained to be funny go on and they get lots of paid work being funny yeah. and they get to be on the telly being funny and those sorts of things so they've had kind of fame and yes. fortune off the back of it but that's a relatively small number that go all the way onto that most people just do it use the skills and then use them in other contexts. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm absolutely with you on that. I think it's, uh, along with, well, for me, along with storytelling, but that's part of stand-up anyway, anyway in, in a sense. It's, a, it's such an important skill. And how open do you find they are to developing their funny bone? Because I imagine that not everyone you work with is kind of perhaps there voluntarily. Perhaps some, yeah. some people have been pushed forward into this. How... how how do you? Uh, how open are they, and how do you break that down if they're not? Yeah, mostly I teach people who want to be there, yeah. and that's fine. But there are a few places I go where I am mandatory. I'm mandatory on a few PhD training programs, oh, for right. instance, doing comedy. Oh, skills. that's very forward thinking. Well, it's forward thinking, but it's also the kind of you know groups of scientists who walk into a room, see a ring of chairs, and just go. Oh, no, I was hoping there'd be a table. <laughs> you know, they freak out the whole thing. So one of the things I now do with those groups is that I'm much less full-on with them. Yeah. I don't start with getting them do all, to doing all sorts of standing up and moving around exercises. And I don't think to myself I'm going to make these people do gigs. Because normally my training has gigs afterwards. Yes. And you can take part in my whole comedy empire. Yes. Those people, there isn't a gig afterwards. So rather than try and get them on stage, I focus on the ways they can be funny in a work environment they actually go to. Yes. And then they are much more receptive to the whole thing because it's about how can I use this for what I do? Yes. Not, if I engage with this session, I'm going to massively have to step out of my comfort zone later and feel extremely worried. So it's about you providing them with a toolkit that yeah. they can use. But do you find that having done that session with you, some of them then go on to say, well, is there... Is there any chance I could yeah, try these yeah, out? totally. There's always a couple that go on and do that, but it's the weirdly keeping them engaged through a session is no problem. Yeah. But it's there will be a few people there who are just I really don't want to be here because I'm worried that you're going to make me do stand up comedy. Uh, and so for those people, I really do now do. Here's how to use the skills in normal life. Yes. Yeah. And do and do they do you have any feedback from them in terms of? Do they have the same sort of results that you other people do from actually doing the gig? I think it's a little bit early. Right. to find out at this point because um, those people I only see once. Right. One of the reasons I took on this big mentoring scheme is that with a lot of this kind of comedy training or uh, putting on shows for new people, because one of the things I do is try and kind of get 40 to 60 new people a year on stage, yeah. um, is that you only see them once yes. and you don't really track their development yeah, unless yeah. they email you later and go, it's been so good, I've gone on and done. But most people are too busy living their lives yes. to yes. send you feedback. But that's why I have a group that I've worked with over time. It's kind of a longitudinal tracking. And one of the nice things about that longitudinal tracking is that there's now a PhD student embedded in that group ah. researching I was their gonna change say. over time. <laughs> I was wondering if you yeah. were going to get some quantitative and qualitative great research well, out of it. Uh, he is an ethnographer. So he's from that kind of... What's um, that? Uh, it is a kind of anthropology, so it's... Uh, is that ethnicity? Being... No, 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 it's, uh, it, it's weird. It, it, it's ethna, but not meaning the same thing. It's right. nothing to do with race. It's to do with a type of embedding yourself into a group of people and oh, really trying to see how they talk about each other and how they understand what they're doing and then reflecting that in what you write. So it's like an undercover 
a sort of stealth researcher. I presume these people know that he's... Yeah, well, he's, he's in and, you know, he comes to the training sessions and he sits and he takes notes on everything. But my rule and my agreement with him and his PhD supervisor was that he has to do things as well. So he has been trained, he has done gigs. He's talked about his research on stage, but he's not allowed to talk about his research into us yes. on stage. Part of the ethics for his PhD was that it will somehow ruin his research process if he starts talking about the research he's doing on us at one of my shows. But he's done my shows, because I said, you're not allowed to come to all these things unless you take yeah. part in them. Yeah, you can't just be the observer. You yeah. need to, yeah. That will weird everybody out if yeah. you're just sitting there going, <laughs> hmm, well, of course you would say that. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Cool. And I guess um, we talked about... Bright Club, and I don't yes. know if there is a difference. There's another thing you do called Clever Make Funny. Is there a difference yeah. between the two, so or is it an extension? There's three brands that I kind of have around science that I use a lot. So one is Bright Club, which started in 2009. Bright Club is owned by UCL. It's an idea that I came up with while I worked for them, but it's owned under a Creative Commons licence, which means anybody yes. can set up a Bright Club, but they have to acknowledge that UCL started it and UCL owns it. Right. Um, Bright Club is academics doing stand-up comedy with professional comedians hosting and headlining. Yeah. Uh, my other big thing is Science Show Off, which belongs to me. And Science Show Off is anybody doing anything about any kind of science. And it's quite often funny, but that doesn't mean that it's only academics. It can be all kinds of people. It can be teachers or philosophers of science or uh, clowns or sketch writers or oh, musicians wow. or anybody it usually ends up, ends up being humorous, just because of the kind of thing we do. Science Show Off is always hosted by me, yeah. or someone that I have very heavily mentored, yes, yes. so that they know how the whole thing works. Yeah. Clever Make Funny is a, an overall brand that I use for a lot of the stuff that I do, because I realise I've got Science Show Off as my science brand, History Show Off where I work with historians, oh. I've got like a law thing, an engineering thing. I've got multiple podcasts where I uh, work with experts and interesting people and make them funny in the same way. And then what I've done is labelled all of that clever make funny. So my, my big quest to make every nerd hilarious is clever make funny. Um, and so if you go to clevermakefunny.com, it's just lots of pictures of different projects that you can click through to and find out about that project and why it exists and who I work with. But also what that project is doing at the moment. Because yes. sometimes it'll be, we did two of these in early 2017. I'm trying to find some funding to do another one in 2019. Ah, right. Oh, that's cool. So I didn't realise you did multiple. I know uh, there's a podcast I was going to touch on a bit later on, mm. but I didn't realise you did more than one. Well, I've got one that's coming up because uh, it's a new science comedy panel show. But I need yeah. to get enough of them in the bank Yes. Before I can Launch start it. putting them out. Yeah. Um, that's called Never Explain, and it comes from the fact that I'm very frustrated with science comedy panel shows. If you go to a festival, usually a science comedy panel show is um, four posh white men and Alice Roberts sitting, waiting patiently to give the correct answer. There's no right real kind of comedy in it. Yeah, yeah. You just laugh politely at things that you already know. So this podcast is called Never Explain, and if you start giving scientific explanations, you just cut off. You're not allowed to do that. So you've got to take it down to layman's terms. Not that even what? that. You're no? not even allowed to explain things at all. You're just supposed to be funny. 
Oh, right, So okay. the questions will be things like, which bit of science deserves to be made into a West End musical? What are you going to call the musical? What's the poster going to look like? What's the branding? You know, I don't want... Actually, in 1878, what she really did was she liberated that. I don't care about that. I just want the tagline. I want the branding. I want to know what the programme's going to look like. Let me explore the story through the weird jokes you're telling me rather than you telling me a whole long story. So, you're, so you are actually facilitating the explanation through their comedy? Well, I'm the host, so if it's not funny enough, then never mind the Buzzcock style. I will just interrupt them and insult them and push them around. And, because the thing with it is uh, we record them live. Yeah. But most panel shows, to get half an hour, you record two and a half to three hours. Yes. We can't do that because no. it's got to be a, a, like a live experience people enjoy. So it has to be very snappy and very fast. Are you doing this in front of an audience? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we do, we do, like, we record an hour and that will get edited down to about 40 minutes because the hour has to be so quick. Yeah, yeah. And yet, yeah. if your answer's not going anywhere, I will cut you off and mock you to your face. <laughs> in or, just in order to get a laugh and keep the show going. Oh, wow. What um, was that question you asked again? That, um, that example question? Something about West... What bit of... It was, uh, which story from science should be turned into a West End musical? What should the musical be called? What does the poster look like? What's the tagline? And have you done that in a show? Yeah. And yeah. what was the... What I was the... Remember. You can't remember. Was... I'm going to have to listen Sorry, to that. Sorry, that one's not out yet. <laughs> we, there we go, we've Once I've it. edited it, once I've edited it, I will know it off by heart, because yeah, the yeah. editing process is it so does. much yeah, listening yeah. to stuff over yeah. and over again. And the idea, again, so Never Explain has a mixture of people who've done lots of stuff like this and new people, so it's a way that I'm breaking more people who are interested in science into being funny about science. Because by putting them in teams, it means you've always got an experienced one with a new nice one. Nice one, yeah. So the new one can learn from the experienced one, and the experienced one can do feeder lines. Yes. But what would it be like if that was set in Russia, you know? Yeah, yeah. Just so that the new one can then do jokes all the time. I love that. That sounds absolutely hilarious. I'm looking forward to listening to that. OK, cool. So... Moving on to getting some of your tips mm. for people listening. What what are your top three tips? Three, right. For people, well, you can give more if you like, yeah. with people with a technical complex information to convey about how they can make it funny and engaging. Yeah, so I've changed a lot over the years with how I do this because um, I used to try and teach people to be lightly humorous about their work and now I try and teach people to do comedy that will make audiences laugh from their diaphragm so oh. proper like ah you know? no half-hearted stuff well then. and the key is uh, emotional engagement of the crowd because um comedy is psychological comedy is psychological manipulation you are taking a crowd and moving them through different psychological states for the purpose of having quick changes in psychological states so that they laugh at those abrupt transitions yeah is the way i look at it so, but to do that, you have to get them emotionally engaged. Yeah. So if you want really light laughs, if you want, oh, yes, oh, that is funny, you know, Radio 4 laughs, you yes. might call them, then you can just be like, well, there is a chemical called coming tonight. <laughs> is there? Well, yeah, there is. It's, well, it's a mineral. But um, the problem is... Nobody will remember a lot of that. They won't go over that. And your stuff will only appeal to people who are already really interested in science. Yeah. So the big, big, big thing that I do with everybody is try and get them to emotionally engage with their own work, which everyone is trained not to do. You know, especially scientists are trained to write. 17 patients were examined for the not... I got into work feeling absolutely terrible. Uh, I was supposed to be seeing 34 people. It turned out 10 of them had been misdiagnosed. I'm going to go and kill the person I work with. It's so annoying. Yeah. They're, they're, they're trained to forget all of that. 
And what I try and do is get them to put all of that back in. So find the bits of your work that you are most emotionally connected to, even if they're not funny. I don't care if they're not funny. Yeah. But if you take that bit and that story and that moment you really felt something, that's where, when you then bolt jokes onto it, you will get a set that really makes audiences fall around because you will put forward your real opinions. Yes. And your real opinions are what is going to be super funny. Yes, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I did a thing recently with uh, Welcome, uh-huh. who fund me, which is very kind of them. I trained nine of their staff to be funny. Yeah. So a mixture of people with science backgrounds, people with non-science backgrounds, junior people, and uh, uh, one of the members of their executive leadership team. Oh, right. Um, I trained them all the same. I rehearsed them all the same. One of the things that I realised about myself afterwards with reflection was that I, the more senior they were, the slightly crueler I was to them during the rehearsal, just to break down any hierarchy that yeah. was there. If they were, if somebody senior was like, well, I'm not really sure I've got that, I would just be like, get on that stage now. <laughs> like, Excuse we're going to work through it. People are going to tell you where they've got problems with your jokes. Go. Junior people who are like, well, I'm not sure. I'm like, well, let's have a look at the script. Let's yeah, do some yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but that was great because they all emotionally engaged with their work and they used observational comedy that wasn't just... Isn't it weird that there's always courgettes on a Tuesday? But it was observational that was way more dug in, way more interesting, really going for the culture of the organisation and really being able to talk about stuff that they might not normally talk about, you know, issues around equality and diversity mm. and these sorts of things that yeah. we know are an issue right across all the sectors we work with. But it's hard normally to talk about them. Yeah. But these guys were just diving straight in. Oh, that's brilliant. So, so, first, so the first one is literally, from what you said, is, is almost pulling back the curtain yeah. and letting, sharing your world with people rather than keeping them at arm's length with a, a gag that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so not, and that works with, with, you know, whatever you're doing, whether it's science or law or whatever. Yeah. Getting, and, and anything really, isn't it? It is about getting, un, you know, looking at yourself and being able to share from, from a different place. Absolutely. I mean, if you think of the comedy you love, none of it is well objectively and taking no risks because I stay a long way away from it. Yeah. Isn't that thing weird? Yeah. It's always, I got all the way into this and was half drowning in it and I felt really weird yeah. for the following reasons and I am really weird for the following reasons. Yeah. Um, so that's the, the first really big one is emotional engagement. Yes. It's the big, big, big yeah. thing for me. Um, the second thing for me is that to forget the idea that being funny is a natural skill. Because lots of people go, well, I'm funny. I'll just, I'm, Steve, I won't bother coming to practice. Uh, and when I do, when they say that, and it's always men over the age of 50, yeah. uh, they always go, I don't need to come to practice, do I? I go, well, if you don't come to practice, you can't do the show. Because it's part of the process. And, um, yeah. They think they're naturally funny and they will just talk and they'll get jokes. And the problem is you can be naturally humorous so that your audience sit there and go, oh, yes, what an interesting observation. But actually getting to do that emotional thing where you haul them up to the edge of a punchline, yeah. throw them off and yeah. they laugh, that you have to work on. It doesn't happen by accident. You have to know it's happening. Yes. Which means anyone can do it. It's just a matter of writing yeah. and then performing. Yeah. Both of which are learned, neither of which are natural. Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's there is a whole load of as I always tell people, 
there's a whole load of systems, tools, techniques yeah. that you formulas that you can use to create, but it isn't, you know, and I think most people who do think they're naturally funny are probably not. That's what, well, in my experience. Like you will have come across <clears throat> all the people who think they're great speakers. Yeah, it's, yes. Yeah. And what they've got is they've got one talk that they do everywhere that they think is really good, but in the 20 years they've been doing stuff, nobody's ever actually given them any feedback because yeah. they don't listen. And what it means is they've got a thing that seems really great when they do it for people identical to them, you know, other chemistry professors, but actually it's rubbish. <laughs> and nobody takes anything away from it and nobody is emotionally affected by it. Um, but they just think they're a great speaker. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. So, so basically, point number two was it's something that can be learned. You have to put the effort in. And everyone, if they put the effort in, will uh, get there. And sometimes you can't do that on your own because it's really difficult sometimes to pull back from what you're looking at and work out where the punchlines are. Yeah. And that's where you should work with other people. So one of the things I encourage my mentee group to do is to share scripts. Oh, nice. And the biggest thing that happens when they share scripts is people saying, you've done 90% of the work to get a big laugh here, but then you haven't put the punchline in. Yeah, yeah. Can I suggest this punchline or a punchline that reflects the following things and you'll get a laugh? Because yeah. you've done all the comedic setup but you haven't done that. Yeah, um, and that's yeah. where other people's eyes are really good. If you can train yourself so that your eyes become like other people's eyes, yeah. you can look at your own material yeah. and spot where there's something so weird yes. that you should do. That's not landing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, other people's eyes are a really good way of doing that. That's really cool. Yeah, okay, cool. And number three. Number three. Mm, what's my other big one? So one of the things that is really great about working with nerds <laughs> is that they know a lot and they've got a lot to talk about yeah. which means that it's very easy for them to make their comedy rich and detailed and therefore very real sounding so one thing that i come across a lot with um just average open mic stand-ups is that a lot of their material doesn't really feel real so you don't get sucked into it you don't get this emotional engagement thing i was talking about yeah. they're like well i once met this guy and and you immediately think this story is made up yes i don't yes, care about any of yeah. this whereas the super nerds that i work with can all be like well in 14th century madagascar it was uh, 1383 when and they, they really narrow the thing right down yeah so whatever it is that happens is then great for them so one of the things that i urge everyone to do is in your comedy be as specific as possible. Don't ever aim for the universal, yes. because the universal isn't funny. Don't ever aim for the abstract, because the abstract isn't funny. Yeah. Be specific, be detailed, be exact. Because if you make me believe that what you're talking about is real, then when the funny thing happens, or the weird thing happens, or you behave in a way that is unreasonable, that's hilarious, because you did it in a real situation. Yeah. But if it's like, oh, one time I went to this thing and... Yeah. It never works. Yeah. So I encourage them to really dig into the rich <clears throat> detail of their work. But you don't get laughs for having detail. No. But detail makes you get the laughs when you've got a punchline. Yeah, absolutely. And I always find, though, and, and that's what I tell people, the comedy's in the detail, absolutely right. And if they get that right, generally you tap into universal themes anyway yeah. because there's only so much, you know, we're all this fundamentally the same and have the same issues. So even though you're telling your story and being specific, people will find they'll be able to jump on board with it because they'll have a oh, similar absolutely. experience. We can't relate to 
what it is like to work at the Large Hadron Collider. We can relate to rubbish bureaucracy, feeling tired from your commute, <laughs> having difficult people that yeah. you work with. Start with that. Yeah. Tell us all about that, and then we're in. Yes, and then exactly. you can tell us about what it's like to work at the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, so build those jumping in points uh, through the detail. That's brilliant. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. No, it's all right. I look forward <clears> to hearing. <throat> Hundreds of people doing emotionally engaged, detailed. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Off the back of I'm sure they will. Now you also work with institutions mm. on their public engagement strategies, and I, I was just interested in this in terms of, you know, this this area. What are the most important things that, that they need to include to reach the public and get them to pay attention? Because there may be some things that we can apply, you know, as speakers or entrepreneurs or or whatever, you know, in terms of the same stuff. Yeah, so my, my big thing with um, the institutions that I work with, I should explain, listeners, I have this really weird career where I do five different things, and I try and make them all fit together, and, and one of the things is that I will go from doing PhD student training up to sitting down with pro-vice-chancellors and talking about how the whole university should work. The, thing, the really big thing for me, and it's similar with comedy, is that you have to be honest. And universities, quite often, what they want to do is sell themselves to the world. Yes. And they want to say, we're making everything better, we're so amazing, look at this great stuff we're doing. And that's fine, but that's the job of communications professionals. Yeah. I don't do communications, I do public engagement. Yeah. And public engagement is about being honest, and it's about actually providing for people outside your walls things that are useful either resources or information or learning or connections or even services, any of that sort of thing. Right. Because if you think about all of us in our real lives, we don't want to be shouted at. No. We don't want to be advertised to. We don't want to be marketed to. So even if you think of yourself as a good organisation that is trying to make the world better, if all you're doing is shouting, we're so great, we're so great, we're so great, what, who are you expecting to take that up and what are you expecting them to take from it? So public engagement, and it's a big thing across UK universities and it's a thing that other organisations are starting to really think about, um, is based on the idea of two-way exchange and on the idea that everybody benefits. So it's not, we are going to trick your children into coming to study chemistry at our university because we get £9,000 a year for each one we get in. Yeah. That's not interesting public engagement. No, no. It is, we're going to work with your community. We're going to work with a group of patients. It's gonna, we're going to work with a group of people at risk of flooding. We're going to work with whatever the thing is yeah. to actually help and actually be relevant to your lives and actually be interesting. Um, and that's the stuff that I tell people. It's like the em emotional engagement for large organisations. Yeah, I was going to say there's that that is that that same sort of thing going on about you know getting under being open and drawing back the curtain in some way. Yeah. It sounds very similar. What you find you know in in business as well is that so many people broadcast. Yeah. You know, and I'm guilty of it as well as, as, as well as the next one, and that's not starting a conversation. That's not building engagement. And social media is is a brilliant way of seeing how you can shift from comms to engagement yeah. if you look at so we're, we're kind of past the golden age of twitter now twitter is much less interesting than it used to be everybody yeah. is just networking yes. there's not really communities and stuff out there but go back a few years to when twitter was really interesting um so i remember the ucl twitter account when twitter was new it just used to tweet the headlines of press releases that the university was putting out it was just broadcast yeah no one followed it yeah it got, they got a new media manager who took it over who started interacting with people, and immediately it 
grew its followers by an order of magnitude, ten times in like a week, just because wow. suddenly you could interact with it and you could talk to it. Um, and then the, my other current favourite example is uh, the Museum of English Rural Life in <laughs> Reading, who have uh, one of the best social media strategies going. Um, there's a, it's run by a guy called Adam, yeah. who I used to... Weirdly, I taught him in a museum studies course years ago. But he um, has started using their museum Twitter account like an engaged Twitter account. So it shares memes and jokes and it comments on other people's memes and jokes and it intervenes in conversations. And their social media engagement is incredible, like the numbers they get. If all you want are numbers, you know, you're yeah. one of these boring organisations you have to report numbers to. Their numbers are astronomical for a small university museum. Wow. But um, it's because they really engage. They don't go, we've got very great things. Let us tell you how great they are. Let's tell you how great they are. Let's tell you how great they are. They are out there making jokes about themselves and making jokes about other people's stuff and teaming up with one museum to attack another museum yeah, on Twitter. Yeah. It's a really interesting example of actually how being part of a community is much more powerful than broadcasting to that community. But that's so interesting because, I mean, we're slightly digressing here, but I think it's a really important point to make, you know, and I'm just sort of making these connections myself, is that using a Twitter account as if in the same way that you teach people to do stand-up comedy. Yeah. It, it's exactly the same thing. You yeah. know, it's it's about self-deprecation. It's all those sort of comedic tools that you can apply to help you be funny if you start applying them, you know, and that emotional stuff and showing behind, lifting the curtain, if you start to apply those to social media yeah. are actually going to make you much more appealing to, for people to connect with and engage with. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I, I think it depends on the platform. Twitter has become a place that mainly the, the tone of voice is either screaming angry or quite funny and engaged. <laughs> yes, is, yeah. But, you know, Instagram is a lot more po-faced. It's really, look at my amazing life. Yes. My perfect <laughs> colour-coordinated granola that matches yeah. me. You know, it's much harder to be funny on Instagram. Snapchat, on the other hand, is non-stop jokes. Like, that is what people are doing on uh -huh. it. That's all why they've got all the strange filters and all the... It's, Snapchat is where most of the kind of humour-based... Do you use Snapchat a lot? I don't... I tried for a while, but I, can't navigate I just couldn't it. get going, yeah. Oh, oh, it's not just me then, I was thinking oh, it was me. But... I could work out how to use it, I just couldn't get anything actually happening. Oh, I plugged right. away at it for a year, because I always think you have to try things for a year before you know if they yeah. work. I plugged away for a year, couldn't get going. And then going. Uh, LinkedIn is just like, we don't do jokes. No, well, LinkedIn <laughs> is only if you're trying to be headhunted for something. Yeah. They're the only people who would read LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. LinkedIn is a very strange thing. So, uh, basically... For well, what, what's your view on Facebook? So Facebook is really good for reaching uh, smaller communities. Yeah. So I recruit nearly all my acts for things on Facebook. Right. Either through my personal page or the Science Show Off group or my friends' pages. Yeah. Cause, uh, because I've worked with so many people over the years, yeah. they are all now constantly looking for new people for me. So I go, who would be great for a history show at? Yeah. And make the post public and then my friends tag interesting people that they've met who right. are historians or writers or archaeologists or librarians yeah. or whatever. Um, and that's now how I grow my network. I don't get complete randoms. Yeah. It's always contacts of contacts growing outwards. Yeah. Facebook's really good for that because yeah. it means I'm not open to... Like, if I do the same things on Twitter, 
then you've got the chance of just terrible people being like, I am the greatest history writer. <laughs> Let me tell you about how Hitler's been terribly misunderstood. Like, no! <laughs> yeah, we used to get them for Science Show Off. We used to get people who were like, um, my theory proves that physics has been wrong since they abandoned the ether theory. So let me do one of your shows and I'll tell you, no. Unless you're doing this as a really clever in-joke, no. Or, or, or we're going to run a, a session specially for people who can't get to sleep at night. That would probably be about right. Yeah, but universities already do things for people who can't sleep. Yeah. They're called public lectures. <laughs> One of the things that I do is go and sit at the front of public lectures and look round. I always look round 40 minutes in to count how many people are resting their eyes. Oh, really? It's usually a third to two thirds. Really? Well, because they're at six o'clock or 6.30, straight after you've Why had a long you day, course? you've not had your dinner, you're crashing out, you're put in a dark room when somebody goes... The really interesting thing about ICI's strategy in the 1930s was that they, and everybody is just... Yeah. <laughs> um, it's one of the great failures is we have this thing that is meant to do a job, like transferring information. It doesn't transfer information, it doesn't no. engage. But also, they're not really public. Um, there's a lovely survey done every three or four years by Ipsos Mori called um, Public Attitudes to Science. And one of the findings is 1% of the UK population go to a conference, lecture or seminar each year. Like, they don't reach anyone. No. That's... Given the amount we do, they don't reach anyone. That's a real shame, isn't it? OK. No, it just, we've got to do something else. That's why I do comedy shows and people do theatre and it's why public engagement is important. It's because if you just think, well, if I make information available, yes. people will access it. They won't. You have to be, yes, it is about outreach, isn't it? And, and engaging in different ways, exactly what you're doing. Well, yeah. and, and doing stuff that is led by what the people you want to interact with want and need, not by what is easiest for you to put on. That's or interesting. easiest for you to yeah. deliver. I want to move on to your speaking now. Yeah. Um, obviously, this is a speaking club. Yes. So, um, Hello, I'll... speakers. <laughs> uh, very exciting. Or, although, also for Do you people... divide your speakers into woofers and tweeters? No. <laughs> no. A little speaker joke there. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> We're moving on. <laughs> no, I like that joke. OK, so, yeah, how do you put your own talks together? Mm. Mm-hmm. It depends what kind of talk I'm doing, because I do pure comedy sets, yeah. which are built by trying bits out in front of audiences over and over and over again. And yeah. Partly, a big thing with my comedy is that um, I can't really write. Uh, I'm not good at it. I'm good at writing and editing for other people, yeah. but for me, I have to talk. And so I go on stage and I do a little bit, 30 seconds of a thing... And I see, oh, I like that, and that grows into a couple of minutes. Oh, and, okay. um, it's like I arrived in Edinburgh with 25 minutes of scripted science comedy. Did it once, um, but it didn't feel very good. So the next day I binned it, and I did 25 minutes of improvised stuff just on what was in my head. Wow. Uh, three days before I came up to do Edinburgh, my girlfriend and I went for an ultrasound scan, and it's twins. Oh, congratulations. You say that, but the project is 100% over budget already. <laughs> and that's what's on my mind. Yeah. Not this tight scripted science comedy I was doing. Yeah, so yeah. I just splurged 25 minutes of science-related stuff around this. And then the next day I've done a similar thing. Yeah. I've refined the bits I liked from day one. Yes. You know, talking about what I wanted my kid to be like. And yeah, all yeah. this sort of stuff. Um, and then that's how I write comedy. 
right? Is it just, it refines and it adds to, and I'm like, what's in my head? What am I working on? Yeah. Real talks. Yes. Where I've got to get ideas across. Um, I always try and keep humour in them. So I don't do anything that isn't at least 10% punchlines. Like, it doesn't matter what the conference is. It can be the Royal Astronomical Society's meeting of outreach specialists. I still want <laughs> at least 10 laps in my 10 minutes. Um, the way I put those together is um, I always try and think about what I actually want to say. What is my big core message? Yeah. And I will hammer that throughout in lots of different ways. Disguised yeah. as lots of different things. But I recognise that you're not going to take more than one thing away. Yeah. Like You might take a photo of the odd slide because there's some things to Google. That's yeah. the thing I've started doing, by the way, is rather than do like 19 case studies of... I, I was asked to do a talk in South Korea for the Korean Foundation of Science and Creativity about interesting public engagement with science in the UK. Yeah. And rather than talk about 50 things, yeah. I talked about three themes. Yes. And then I said, and if you want to follow up these themes, and then I had a slide which just had five things you can Google, and they will tell you everything. Because everyone there has a phone, yes. and they will just take a photo, and then they'll Google those things. Yeah, so yeah. I don't... I don't overload my talks yes. because I'm aware you're only going to take one thing away. It's so true, yeah. Here's your one big point, here's your one big theme. I'm just going to push that over and over again. Oh, cool. Um, but, yeah, I, those ones, um, I don't practice really because I've done so many that um, if I've got, for instance, PowerPoint, I structure through the PowerPoint. Yeah. But my PowerPoints are really simple um, and I would encourage everybody to do what I did recently and uh, if you use slides a lot design your own visual identity and get uh -huh. somebody who knows design to look at it and then make everything you do stick to that because I see so many good speakers undermined by slides that look like they were put together in 1997 by a PhD student yeah so it's uh, about branding Basically. Yeah, partly, yeah, yeah. But, but visual identity, uh, making your own visual identity template is really fun because what you end up doing is writing loads of passive-aggressive notes to yourself. <laughs> so, for instance, uh, in my photo slides that yeah. are half photo, half text, on the photos it says in lovely little letters, only photo credits belong on photos. Uh. <laughs> and um, like I've got the different levels of emphasis are labelled... You can emphasise like this if you have to <laughs> in italics. And then, I don't know whether you swear on this podcast, but uh, you can edit it out. I've just got one slide that just says, no <laughs> transitions. <laughs> just so that whatever I'm doing, I remember. Oh, yeah, don't put in that thing that's... So this is, your, this is your own sort of guide for making sure that you're consistent in, and, and it represents you and the way that you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the visual identity that I use is built from the way I'm always putting myself across, which yeah. is that I want to show that I'm utterly competent, I know what I'm doing, and I know what I'm doing to the point that I can take the piss on top of that. Yes. You know, I'm not joking to fill gaps in my knowledge. I'm joking because... Otherwise, the transferal of stuff from me to you would be a bit boring. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, my visual identity reflects that. Cool. I like that. So being congruent, that's well, brilliant. One of the other things is that I do a lot of talks in rooms with crap lighting and crap projectors. Uh -huh. So it's really basic things like I only use black backgrounds, I only use white text that is at least regular and usually semi-bold because... If you're going to do all your stuff in washed-out conditions, yes. all of these lovely university templates that have purple text on white and stuff like this, you can't read them no. in 50% of the rooms that I work in. Yeah. So my visual identity has to reflect 
the practical nature of the places that I work in. That's fantastic tips. Thank you for that. Brilliant. Okay. And okay, and what so in your experience, yes. what do you think separates an average speaker from a great one? Right. So this is the thing I wanted to talk about. Okay, cool. Because one of the really big points that I always try and get across is that I don't believe in the concept of a great speaker. Right. Right. There is only a great speaker for that audience in that place at that time. Okay. And I get really annoyed. I've had stand-up rows at presenters' conferences with people who say things like, well, I don't believe you can be a great speaker and say, um, or like, or... And I have to say to them, mate, like, you need to go and watch Richard Herring's stand-up. <laughs> yeah, Richard yeah. Herring can say, um, in a way that just stops a crowd stone dead and yeah. makes them laugh. Uh, I remember the first time he was on Just a Minute, he was terrible, because his natural comedic style is all ums and pauses, but done brilliantly. And if you're trying to talk to a bunch of 17-year-olds and you are a 23-year-old PhD student who's quite cool, if you're Alex Lathbridge, who I work with a lot, Again, Alex can say like in a way that will stop that audience dead and really make them listen. Yeah. Whereas if you put someone in front of them doing a TED talk, they will just mock that person <laughs> to little bits. <laughs> and this is the big thing I want to get across because I meet a lot of people who have a talk yes. and they do that talk. Yeah. And I host events that are at universities and they're very formal. I, host, I do a lot of hosting things where universities are worried that this is a, a speaker who might attract controversial questions. So they work on sexual health or they work on abortion or they work on evolution or climate change. Because having a comedian host that, if you ask an aggressive question, I treat you as a heckler. Yes. You won't get an answer. Yeah, You'll yeah. just get me putting you down. Yeah, yeah. Um, I also host uh, Sunday Papers Live, which is super informal really nice it's in Cecil Sharp House which is like a folk music centre we fill it with sofas and cushions oh nice everyone's eating Sunday lunches and listening to talks and if you come in and do your same talk that you do for the board of Siemens yeah um, that might be a great talk but it will fail yeah. Because you're not adapting. Yeah, yeah. So the big thing I always want to get across to people is that they get very focused on the mechanics of speaking and the mechanics of how can I tighten up this script even more? How can I bring more force? I think Ted has been terrible for speaking. That's really, he was the second person that said that. Because Ted is about one specific audience, yes. right? And if you're talking to that audience, do a TED talk, that's yeah. fine. But um, I, like, I have a running joke about TED Talks that you can use or not use, you can edit it out depending on who you want to offend. But I always say when you watch a TED Talk, it's all about really selling you this idea. Yes, yeah. So you sit and you listen and you go, yeah, 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 yes, 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 yes. And then it finishes and you, li you think for 15 seconds and you go, no. <laughs> um, and I think people think that's how you talk now. But actually, if you're talking to a bunch of school kids, if you're talking to a bunch of people that you're trying to pitch an idea to in an informal setting, even if you're talking to a university crowd, a lot of the people I work with, if you do that super slick thing yeah, with them, yeah. they'll tear you apart in the questions. There'll be nothing left. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I encourage speakers to think about is things like uh, how you project status. Because a lot of people think to be a great speaker, you have to constantly project an incredibly high status. Yeah. But, you know, we do a lot of training. You can't do that. I can't have you PhD students come into a room. They've been told that I'm a doctor, that I've got all these awards, that I've done all this stuff. They're petrified. If they come in and I'm sitting on the floor eating a curly whirly, squaring at my laptop, 
um, they're much happier yeah. than, you know, if they process in and then the lights go down and I come in and I do a talk at them. They hate that. Yeah. So I would encourage everybody to get away from this idea that there is such a thing as a great speaker and actually ask, what is the right solution for the problem in front of me? Yeah. Who am I talking to? What do they want? Because you can pitch things totally wrong. Yeah. really really easily and one of the joys of comedy is you learn to read a crowd because yes. crowds give instant feedback on what you're doing you get yeah. very into who's looking who's not I can tell you this week about the gig I did for 50 people and 6 of them didn't laugh once and I could in my head I could point out where those 6 people are yeah. and I could tell you where the people who laughed at everything yeah, yeah. like those guys are coming to my show this week I know yeah. so um, we're so aware of those crowds in a way that I think a lot of people who've only had very formal speaking training aren't aware of crowds in the same way, yeah. which means they do their talk and they pitch it wrong because yeah. they don't notice. They, yeah, I always talk about the people I know who've been doing the same public talk for 10 years and it's been crap for 10 <laughs> years. Because, but they, they're quite successful because the people who book them are other professors of chemistry for whom it's a great talk. Yes. But for members of the public, it's dreadful yeah. and like unwatchably bad. Um, but no one's ever said... Here's how we can sort this out for this crowd. Yeah. So, yeah, stop believing in great speakers. I like that. So it's about context and, and about audience. So the, the first thing in terms of strategy I teach is you've got to think about who the audience yes. is. Yes. And you've got to be prepared to... And I guess in some way people... It, it's moving out of their comfort zone because they've got a talk that worked. Yes. And, and it's letting go of that comfort zone and that blanket and just opening yourself up again to, to, to be there for the audience and to yeah. connect with that audience. That's a really great And tip. one way I help them with that is I always remind everybody that no talk you do matters. Yeah. Right? On its own terms. It's just practice for the next one. Yeah, yeah. So you're trying things, you're learning things. The, there's like, within universities, there's one talk that matters, which is you are going for a professorship. Part of the hiring process is you have to do a lecture to the yeah. people in the department. That talk matters. Yeah. Um... Weirdly, I've sat through those where people clearly haven't prepared for them at all. And I think, this is literally your career hinging here. Do some prep. Oh, but they're yeah. so frightened of public speaking that they don't. But anyway, every talk, just try things. Yeah. Uh, if it doesn't work, you were just doing an experiment for the next one. Yeah. Um, you can try doing exactly what the audience want. I do a lot of um, stuff because I'm a comedian where I give the audience exactly the opposite of what they thought they wanted. I come out, uh, if I'm doing science comedy in Cambridge, right? In Cambridge you get quite serious audiences that are a bit more po-faced. And uh, science comedy, they're expecting every punchline to be like the eighth digit of pi is seven. <laughs> um, so I come out and I start with, I just need to tell you guys, I really love homeopathy. And you hear the chairs scrape backwards as they move back a little bit. But what I'm doing is putting them right on the back foot of... Yeah. We're doing comedy tonight. Yeah. I know you've come expecting something else, but this is comedy. This is my art. You're getting my art. I'm yeah. going to get you into this. I'm not going to pander to you. Yeah. Um, and you can do that as a comedian because you're an artist. But if you're doing a talk, yes. you can't do that. No. You've got to work with what you've got. Yeah. Well, that's brilliant tips. So that's great. Thank you. Okay. Right. Thank you for sharing all that stuff. No, it's all right. I've got a if anybody's of... like, oh, that was really good, you can pay me and hear a lot more. <laughs> well, I'm going to come on to that. But before that, I've got a couple of standard questions. Yes. That's all right. Yes. What's my favourite biscuit? Well, we've got some Schokolibnitz here. So yeah. maybe, maybe those. They are my favourite biscuit because they are the most <laughs> expensive biscuit. And there's the least biscuit to the most yes, chocolate. That is absolutely right. It's heading towards being a boost bar. <laughs> right. Now, the first question yes. I've got is, what is the best thing speaking has done for you? The best thing speaking has done for me. 
Well, uh, I met the mother of my twins when I trained her to do comedy. Ah. She was a lawyer doing oh. one of my law gigs. She'd written herself a little 30 before 30 list, and one of them was try stand-up comedy. And um, weirdly, she lived in a flat with um, two other women, and both their boyfriends had done my gigs. Like, they didn't know each other. The boys didn't know each other. The women didn't know. That's not how they met. But she went home and went, oh, I'm thinking of doing stand-up comedy. And both of the people she lived with went, my boyfriend's done one of Steve Cross's gigs. And the other one's like, what? My boyfriend's done one of Steve Cross's oh, gigs. Wow. So uh, it's really weird. Once you start speaking, and not like speaking at people, but being in a community that yes. is all about communicating and learning together... Things like that happen. Oh, wow. That's uh, serendipity for yeah. you. Absolutely. I like that. You make also. your own luck. Yeah, I like that. Like that. Okay, and what should have been your worst gig? Oh, God. Mm. Worst gig, worst gig. I've never had really terrible ones because I mostly do stuff that I've run myself. Yes. Um, which means that... Because when a gig goes terribly wrong... Either there's no one there, which is out of your hands. Yes. Or it's because the thing that you've brought doesn't match the people who are there. Yeah. Uh, and that is super awkward and painful. It's a thing that happens to a lot of people here at the fringes. They've written a one type of set and they walk in and the crowd is totally wrong. Yes, it and is hard. I, you know, I remember I did... Um, it wasn't a bad gig, but it's an example of this... Um, I did comedy at Green Man in the comedy tent, and we uh, it was a show I was hosting with other comedians performing. And um, so we had a thousand people in the tent, but the whole front row was a stag do wearing togas. Oh no! And all these other comedians kept going out and looking at them and going, "Ah, Steve, you're completely buggered." <laughs> whole front row is stag do. Um, so what I had to do was ditch all the material I was going to do and go out and uh, so I acknowledged the existence of the stag do but they wanted the whole show to be about them and I wasn't going to interact with them yeah. to do that. I pitched the gig both literally and metaphorically over their heads and they walked out about eight minutes later on a punchline about Sylvanian families <laughs> which I think threatened their masculinity to the point that they were like something is going to happen to us if we stay here we're going lads lads um, so that sort of thing is always difficult. What's yeah. um, my worst gig? Do you know, I think part of surviving as a comedian is you just dump those memories. <laughs> we have to. Like, I've had... Uh, so with the presentations and things, I think one thing that a lot of people have is that they're really frightened of questions. Yes. So I meet so many people who accidentally overrun through the questions <laughs> time. It's like, first of all, learn to keep your talks to time. Because everyone will hate you if you overrun. If you overrun, especially if you're like before lunch, no one's heard a thing you say. They just hate you because they want lunch. Yeah. And secondly, do questions, but be ready to get rid of them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I'm never scared of questions. But I do remember being on a panel and someone asking me what was clearly meant to be a trip up question. It was meant to embarrass me. And I just went, um, do you know that's really interesting, but it's probably a bit of a big issue for everyone here. Why don't we talk about it over coffee? And my then boss, sitting next to me under his breath, just went, ballsy move. <laughs> but um, that person never came to talk to me. When people are asking you questions that I just humiliate you, yeah. you just say, I'll do it, I'll do it here, we'll do it over coffee. They will never come and ask you, because they were just trying to score points in the room. Yeah, exactly. And you've got to be confident enough, because no-one in the room wants that. No-one else is sitting there going, oh, I hope this speaker's demolished by a humiliating question. <laughs> Cool. Um, so I've had a few of those. But, I, yeah, I think I have, as a kind of 
defence mechanism dumped all of my But that's a good lesson in it itself. Don't keep those memories, just learn from them, basically. But one of the other things I would say is don't let gigs be terrible all the way through. Part of learning to be a comedian is learning to flex your style. Yeah. So if... Like, I'm emceeing a thing and people aren't getting into it. Yeah. And the first act is on. When the second, when I go on after the first act, I will have changed what I'm doing. I will be doing something really different. I've just remembered my worst gig. Oh, right. Uh, my worst gig was um, they showed a science fiction film and then three of us had to do stand-up comedy afterwards. Right. And the problem was that, firstly, most people were only there to see the film. Yeah. So they left after the film. So I've now got a cinema that is one quarter full. Yeah. Second, it's a cinema. So all the spaces absorb sound. So laughter doesn't carry in no, any sort yes, of way. Yeah. The audience can't bounce off each other. Third, it was a really particular audience. So what I did as an MC was I started doing some like, intellectual stuff. They laughed at a bit, so I went, they like intellectual stuff. So I did more, they didn't laugh. So I retracted. And then I did like more kind of broad stuff, and they laughed at that, so I did more of that. Then they stopped laughing, so I retracted. And then I went dirty, and they laughed at a bit of that. And I was like, OK, they want dirty. So I did more dirty, and they didn't. And <laughs> so every track I went down, it didn't quite work. And I went off, and I introduced the first uh, like act. And the, a man who runs comedy nights in that venue every week came up to me, and he said, don't worry, you can't win here. You can't uh... build momentum with this crowd. They only laugh joke to joke. You can't do that thing of, or oh, tonight, OK, we're going down this road, because yeah. that's where you want to go. So that was really useful, because then I went back out and I just did one-liners at them. And if they laughed, they laughed, and if they didn't, they didn't, and then I brought the next person on. Oh, that's useful, but, but heartbreaking when you're trying to find a, a way to go. Well, the man who came and talked to me made it all a lot better, because I thought it was me, and he went, you just can't win here. <laughs> Brilliant. Right, just a, just a few more. What is the best book that you've read um, in terms of having the most impact on your life and why? Wow. Well, um, it's the book that I give to everybody who does stand-up training with me and ha have done ever since the beginning of Bright Club. Uh, it's Logan Murray's How oh, to Be yes. a Stand-Up. Um, and it is just the best book on yeah. how to be funny and specifically how to be funny about things you know about. Yeah. And so to this day, it's the thing that I send to everybody and recommend to everybody. Uh, and then the second one off the back of that is um, Keith Johnston's Impro. Just oh, the whole okay. first section is about status and how you project it. And it's been really good for a lot of people I work with, not just speakers, but people who are new in a job where they're fully qualified, but yeah. everyone they work with is 20 years older than them, or everyone they work with is a man and they're a woman. The book is really good on how to project yourself, yes. and not in a kind of management-y, speaky. It comes from improvisational theatre, how you oh, stand, nice. how you breathe, how you look. Um, that's been really good as well. Oh, I'll link to those in the show notes. OK, what's the best piece of business advice you've ever had and why? OK, the best piece of business advice I've ever had is from... Um, uh, his name's Paul Gilbert. If any of you are lawyers who need training, you should go and talk to him. Um, and Paul said... I was talking about endless hustling, freelancing. Yes. How do I get my website right? How do I get my business cards? And yeah. Paul said... I don't really have a website. I don't really have business cards. I don't really want to work with anybody who's not my friend. And so he said, it's much better to, have, to be working with people that you know and trust and to have recommendations from people you also know and trust. And you build your community yeah. rather than trying to have one-off transactions with people yes. where you hunt them down, you talk them into it, you do the work, you get the money, you go away, right? Because they're never quite satisfied. You're never quite satisfied and you hustle forever. 
And so the thing that makes me happiest is is not hustling. Yes. Um, and he was just so reassuring where he said, you choose the way you run your own business, yeah. right? And your business might be about bringing in a maximum amount of money and really working yourself and, you know, doing kind of one-sided deals and all that sort of stuff. But your business might be about building a long-term community and building long-term relationships and growing slowly, yeah. but growing in a way that makes you happy. That's and brilliant. it was fantastic. So he's, uh, if you want to look him up, it's quite hard to find. Uh-huh. Uh, he is LBC Wise Council. Is what you Google. Excellent. I like that. And that fits in with that thousand true fans. I don't know if you've come across the article, but it's that sort of thing. You only need a thousand true fans to have a great business. Well, and it's one of the things I say to people is think about how you're allowing people to be your fans. Yeah. So don't trek up to... um, Don't trek up to Durham to do a show for 18 people because you spend loads of money on the transport, you get knackered. And because you don't gig in Durham on a regular basis, those people can't... Yes, continue to engage with you, yeah. Exactly, so that's why I'm trying to build out from the middle and I encourage the people I work with to build out from where you are, build a community around you. Yeah. And yeah, you can use podcasts to connect up with people in different ways, but really think about the 1,000 true fans. Yeah, brilliant. Okay, last last question before I want to talk about how people can work with you. Yeah. Um, If you could have one mentor, and they can be alive or dead, fictional or non-fictional, who would you choose and why? Crikey, this is a very big question. Um, I think the thing I forget about the most and the thing I need help with the most is the reminder that in the end, comedy especially is an art form. When you're self-employed, it's very easy to think what I need to do is the thing that's going to bring in the most money the most easily, you know? Um, But that's not a long-term strategy. Pandering is a short-term strategy. You have to keep doing it. In the end, the job of the comedian is to build your art the way you want to build your art, and then people react to it or they don't. And it's that constant reminder to go back to what is true to you. So if I could have any sort of mentor, it's probably someone like Salvador Dali, you know? The thing of actually follow the path that you're on And don't worry about how do I make this as broad as possible? How do I create the Radio 4 friendly version of myself? How do I jump onto trends that are happening around me for short term business spikes? You know, there's no science show of fidget spinners, for instance. (laughs) So it'd be somebody like that, somebody who had just a vision and went at it. That's what the constant thing I need pushing back to because the self-employed person within me is always like well this year why don't I do a whole load of Brexit stuff and the answer is Brexit stuff is irrelevant to me it's not the path I'm on it's not the art I'm making and everyone is doing Brexit stuff all you can do is create the art you want to create and then let people come to it not create the art that you think people want because everyone is doing that you can't compete in the way everyone is competing I love that. That's a brilliant bit of advice. Absolutely. Find your own niche and build out from there. Brilliant. Yeah, well, this is why lots of people say to me, I didn't realise anyone had your job of basically making nerds funny for a living. And I'm like, yeah, that's why I've got it. (laughs) Just being a club stand-up, you provide a commodity. It's like you grow cows for milk or whatever, and you're reliable for that commodity, but how do you grow? Yeah. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. Well, thank you. You've shared some absolutely fantastic golden nuggets, oh, and I hope 
people uh, really get on board with those. Yeah. Now, if people want to work with you, yes. there's, there's a few things. So how can they work with you if they want to get involved with any of the science stuff, first yeah. of all? Um, or the different ways that they can work with you? What's the best place to go to engage with you? So the best place to go is clevermakefunny.com, which okay. has all my projects on and lots of different ways of contacting me. Uh, most people contact me through Twitter. Yeah. I'm at Steve and then an underscore and then the letter X, Steve X, or at Science Show Off. Um, mostly, if you want to come and have a go at something, I always have shows that you can come and try five minutes of science stand-up or you can have a go at being on a comedy panel show. Uh, if you want to be trained, I run individual training, I run training for organisations, I run training for interested groups. If you and six of your mates want to have a go, uh -huh. we can totally do that. Um, I'm really interested in helping people the way they need to be helped. So I don't have a lot of formal structures. Yes. I just have... Well, let's make a thing happen. Yeah, love that. And then I want to also quickly touch on your podcast. Yeah. I'm going to... I've read this. It sounds absolutely hilarious. And I know you talked about the other one you've got yeah. coming up. Well, yeah. I think we might have talked about that We've off air. we mentioned it in here. Yeah. So Chaotic Adequate. Yes. What is that? So, chaotic Adequate is, uh, at the most basic level, is four people having a row about what they're supposed to be doing while they're playing Dungeons & Dragons. Um, you, <laughs> don't, you don't need to understand Dungeons & Dragons to listen to it. It's as much about house prices in the West Midlands as it is about dwarves and elves. But the, my favourite thing about Celtic Adequate is that four of us play, three of us are professional comedians, but the other person is a PhD student at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies, and part of her work is the representation of women and parenting in fantasy and horror texts. Oh, my goodness. So she's playing the only woman in our improvised fantasy and horror <laughs> text, and her, most of her character's kind of issues are around parenting and her relationship with her father. So all of her research from her PhD floods into this incredibly complicated character. Oh, wow. And then the D&D floats back into her PhD thesis. So even this very silly thing that I do, chaoticadequate.com, yeah. um, is actually public engagement with somebody at a university. Oh, research. I love that. I love that. So check it out. And presumably people can get it on iTunes, Stitcher. I, all of them. Yeah. All the things. Um, yeah, we're on Twitter. We're at Chaotic Adequate. Uh, we have Instagram. We have everything. Excellent. So do check that out. Well, brilliant. All that's left for me to say is, and we're, we're at the fringe. Yes. So um, I think this may go out after, but it may How still sensible. be, um, is uh, Science Show Off. But presumably people can catch those shows in London anyway. Yeah. Science Show Off exists all over the place. Uh, we're here for the entire month of the fringe. And then the next one in London is the 20th of September at the Amersham Arms brilliant. in New Cross. But ScienceShowOff.org, there are always things happening there. Smashing. Steve Cross, thank you so no, much. Thank you very much for having me on. This has been very fun. You're welcome. Good thank luck with you. the show tonight. Thank you very much. This show was a blast to record. Steve is a funny guy and I love how committed he is to changing the way we perceive science and scientists. So go ahead and check out his programs and workshops. And uh, I also think the point he made about adapting our style and message is so valuable. And uh, he and I also both agree being funny is a skill that can be learnt rather than a genetic predisposition. And on that note, I also wanted to let you know that my own Titter Stand-Up Comedy course will be going online soon. So, if you want to find out more about how you can learn to be funnier, there is a link in the show notes to register for uh, the waiting list for that course. Okay, 
Well, before I go, I just want to thank you again so much for listening to the show. If you do enjoy it, I would really appreciate you taking a couple of minutes to rate the show on whichever platform you're listening on. It helps so much to get the word out. Oh, and if you're not subscribed, make sure you do. There's so many more great guests and content coming up. Speak to you next week. And do make sure you go out and grab your life by the nuts and get cracking. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Speaking Club podcast at www.saraharcher.co.uk.